I think it's about a lot of things, the film. It's not a normal movie where you only get one thing out of it. It's got all these different layers. I think I started with a home invasion film, just straight-up horror genre of that feeling when you invite people into your home and suddenly they turn out to be very bad guests and it starts to spiral into a nightmare. Um, I think it's something people can relate to because everyone has a home. And then there's also another bigger metaphor going on underneath it, which is this idea that, um, you know, we are all living on this one planet with one mother who gave us life, and how do we treat her? And many people think maybe the ending is very unsettling and brutal. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a very brutal film. It's 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 a horror in the classic sense of a horror film where you're supposed to leave horrified and scared and shaking. Uh, that's the intent. I think it's strange for people because they see Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and Michelle Pfeiffer and Hedda Harris and they're thinking it's one type of film, but then suddenly it's like, no, we are a punk movie. We are in your face. And we want people to come and see it who want to do an intense ride, who want to see something very, very different. everyone, welcome to another series from a podcast directed by. So, for this series of movies, we are taking a look at the director, Darren Aronofsky. Uh, and to do that, we have an expert, as we always do every month, and I thought, who better to come on here to talk about Men in Scarves uh, than Richard Newby? Uh, so, Richard, thank <laughs> you for joining us um, for our... I usually say months, but who knows how long it'll be or when the episodes will come out. But all the movies we're going to talk about from Darren Aronofsky. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. So before we jump into Aronofsky, um, in case there's a few people who don't know, like, who are you? What do you do? And where can people find your work online? Uh, so I am a uh, film journalist, uh, pop culture uh, writer, I uh, actually met Dave. We wrote for uh, audiences everywhere oh, together, a thousand years ago. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so that was that was really fun. Um, and then currently, I'm writing for uh, the Hollywood Reporter, um, so covering all sorts of stuff, mostly genre stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes I get to do some of the award season stuff and. That's been pretty fun, but yeah, so that's basically where I'm working at now. Um, I've done some stuff for the New York Times as well, um, and yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter, always talking about movies. <laughs> yeah, it takes some serious guts to be that active on Twitter, so I definitely <laughs> appreciate it. Um, and I love how like you could just drop, like, you know, no big deal, New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, I'm just, that's, that's where my stuff is at. I kind of sometimes... Not like I forget where we started, but I forget that, like, you are on this level way up here now. We both started the same place. But it's so cool to see you succeed because you absolutely des deserve it. And I would definitely tell people, read read Richard's stuff. It is uh, incredibly impressive writing. And I, I love the fact that we're getting great writing on genre work nowadays. It used to be this was kind of an area that nobody talked about. Uh, like, oh, that's for those freaks over there. They'll they'll enjoy it no matter what it is. But it's good to see, like, really intelligent, thoughtful writing. And, Richard, you definitely give that to people. Um, and you said you were on Twitter. Did you did you drop your handle where people can follow you? I didn't. Uh, it's uh, at Richard L. Newby. 
There you go. So follow him, check him out. You will be rewarded with some great writing. Um, so, you know, most people who have listened to the show kind of know that one of the ways that I find experts is I basically just go on Twitter and search people I follow um, and look for mentions of of the certain director. And there is a there's kind of a dearth of mentions of Aronofsky and people I follow. I think he is. And if they do mention him, usually it's not in the most complimentary ways. Uh, he's definitely a director who, you know, starts conversations, let's say. Uh, it can, def- <laughs> can definitely divide people. But I noticed, like you, you know, you kind of at one point went on a binge of watching Aronofsky movies. Um, and you had a lot of complimentary things to say. I think at one point, you know, it was my boy, Darren Aronofsky. So I was like, okay, this is someone <laughs> who really likes this writer. So a couple things. First... Have in in your writing? Have you published anything on his movies before, where people can you know find your find your writing about this, or is this just something that you've kind of been watching on your own? Uh, so actually, when I first started reviewing movies, um, the first film review that I ever wrote on my own blog was um, a review for Noah, um, and so it's kind of interesting because I mm. feel like uh, my you know film journalism career has kind of started. Uh, with Aronofsky. So yeah, the 2014 Noah, uh, was the first review that I wrote and it was a a really positive review. I remember (laughs) the mixed reactions to that, uh, at the time. (laughs) I'm sure. So, uh, (laughs) I guess that, that always, that kind of started my, uh, (laughs) I guess, uh, alternate takes, uh, if you would on some of the more, uh, (laughs) divisive movies. (laughs) Um, and then I did um, – I wrote a little segment about Requiem for a Dream uh, on audiences everywhere. Um, just – I think it was about um, uh, great movies that you kind of never want to watch again. <laughs> that is appropriate. And, I kind of can't believe I'm going to do this again to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, oh. And then I did a extensive piece when Mother came out. I uh, talked about – uh, mother in context with uh, Noah and Aronofsky uh, continuing his biblical metaphors. And so that's probably my favorite piece um, about his work that I've done. Nice. Awesome. So what I'll do is I'll put those in the show notes for people so they can find them. Even the audiences everywhere stuff, which I'm in disbelief that that site is still like you can still find it. It's still it's still there. It hasn't been, you know, updated in a while, but you can still find that work and there's lots of good work on that website. So I'm glad it's still available for people. Um, so what was your introduction to Aronofsky? Like, were, were you one of those like weirdos who watched Pi when it first came out or did you kind of work your way back? So actually, my introduction was through Clint Mansell's uh, soundtracks. Mm. Um, I was in high school and I remember uh, hearing the soundtrack for Requiem for a Dream and also The Fountain. I think it was right around the time that The Fountain came out oh. in 2006. Fountain has I such was... a beautiful score. Oh my God. Stunning. Yeah. 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 I was a junior in high school when that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually had not seen any of his movies at the time. And I remember. Uh, I was always listening to film scores. We had like laptops at school and I was always listening to film scores. And uh, another girl in my class heard me listening to the Rec Room for a Dream score. And she's like, have you seen that? And I was like, no, I haven't, I haven't seen it. I just know the score. And she's like, oh my gosh, you have to watch it. <laughs> so the next day she let me Rec Room for a Dream. Uh, and so that was my first uh, exposure oh my to Aaron God. <laughs> That's yeah. quite an introduction, man. 
<laughs> it is. And I, I remember watching it in the basement. Uh, I, you know, I was in high school, so I was living with my parents. So I watched it in the basement. And of course, like my dad came downstairs right as Jennifer Connelly oh, is like no. in the pit. Um, yeah. I was just going to ask like, oh yeah, you don't want to watch that scene with your parents. And then of course, the perfect time. Yeah. Oh. And he's like, what are you watching? I'm like, it's just a movie. It's not porn. <laughs> I swear to God, it's not porn. <laughs> oh my God. That is, that is an incredible story. Um, so when you think back about like your introduction and then you think about now, if, if it has, how do you think your relationship with his work has, has kind of changed? Cause back then it sounds like it's kind of overloading your senses. It's very overwhelming. Do you still feel the same way or has it changed? Um, I think. You know, his earlier films, I still find a little bit uh, overwhelming in some regards. I have I think, you know, the first one that I saw theatrically was The Wrestler. And from there onward, I feel like I've really been able to, like, parse through, you know, what he's doing. And I've seen, you know, from The Wrestler to Mother, I've watched those a bunch of times. Um, but with uh, Pie, Requiem for a Dream, and The Fountain, those are still... I, I the 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 fountain less so, but Pie and Requiem for a Dream are a little bit more difficult, just in terms of like the sensory information. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not necessarily the, nar- the narrative. Like in terms of like, I watched Pie after I saw Requiem for a Dream, actually, um, and I, I I love the concept of it. The uh, the execution, the like black and white. It's mm. there's something that he does with it. It's like a reverse of like what a normal black and white should be. It's almost like a, a negative. Right. But the way that that's shot, and I think the the set, the soundtrack to that, which is still Clinton and so, but it's very shrill. Uh, that film always makes me feel a little bit nauseous. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that and Requiem for a Dream are still, those are the ones that I, I haven't revisited Pi actually since I first saw it. And I've only seen Requiem for a Dream a couple times, even though I love the score. But I think those are a little bit more uh, difficult just in terms of uh, the sensory overload. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. Like as he definitely like as he moves forward, like you can see him get it's it's strange. You can see him getting like even though the biblical stuff uh, comes to the forefront, he is getting more linear uh, in the in the way he's telling stories. Whereas Pi, I remember, I'm not sure if I saw Pi before Requiem, but I but I like saw it kind of separately. Like I didn't understand it was really by the same director. Like some weird friend of mine was like, "You got to watch this crazy movie. It's called <laughs> Pi." And I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And I've never and I've never revisited it. So it's going to be very interesting as we go through uh, to to check this out because uh, it's I think it's going to be a very different experience because all of the things you're talking about with Pi are definitely ringing a bell for me like oh yeah i remember that feeling i don't know (laughs) that i really want to relive that but you know that is part of podcasting i guess is sometimes watching movies that you don't necessarily love uh but it'll be interesting (laughs) to kind of watch like how the structure of his career has gone since then um so when we first started the show, everyone who listens to these episodes know the original name was Auteurs for Assholes, but, you know, iTunes is a bunch of fascists, <laughs> so we can't call it that. Um, but we are very concerned with directorial style and, like, what amounts to the auteur theory, at least, like, in a way that is less sexist and awful than the way it was originally thought up. But just like, okay, what what can we expect from a director? So in terms of Aronofsky... 
if you, if you met someone who like, I've never seen a Darren Aronofsky movie, I don't know anything about him. What are his movies like? Like, what are the things that people can expect to see from a movie directed by Darren Aronofsky? Uh, so one of the things that when I was thinking about his filmography that I guess really came to the forefront was uh, he's really attracted to these parallel journeys. Um, and I think you can kind of see that throughout his films, like in, in terms of his characters, there's a lot of, of duality in terms of seeing a, a narrative uh, created through two or more characters and they're on similar paths. Um, I mean, I think even through, even in Pi, you know, you have uh, this younger mathematician and his older mentor who's kind of gone crazy from the discovery of this number. So I think even from the beginning, he started with that. And then, of course, um, Requiem for a Dream, you have these four characters who are all on these similar paths of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fountain, it's like told threefold through Hugh Jackman's character who's in three different points of time. Uh, so it, it kind of continues, uh, I think, throughout his career and this kind of interest in uh, duality. And especially, you know, you get to something like Black Swan, and I think it's even more... Uh, literal yes uh, yeah uh in terms of in terms of what he's what he's exploring but just even between um like his films i think there's an interesting kind of duality and parallel journey like i know the the wrestler in black swan started as like a single idea um and it was originally like about uh, a wrestler who was in love with a ballerina and then those two ideas separated and became the wrestler in black swan but like you look at those films back to back and it's really interesting how how many parallels there are uh between those two stories uh, especially when you get to the ending of of both of those characters mm. um and then it, i think he did it again with uh with noah and mother so i think it's a really interesting way that he's not only like exploring duality within these films itself but also like within his filmography yeah, that's a really good point. I was wondering, because you brought it up earlier, if you could talk a little bit about like the experience of watching an Aronofsky movie, specifically in relation to kind of the religious aspects. Like I think, you know, Mother and Noah are probably the two most obvious examples, but I think even something even something like The Fountain, uh, which certainly has a fair amount of religious iconography and ideas. So what has that been like for you as a viewer? Well, that's probably one of my favorite aspects of uh, his filmography. I, um, you know, I went to a, a Catholic high school, um, so I've always kind of been interested in uh, religion from a non-denominational sense, and I really like uh, mythology. And so I've always kind of looked at Aronofsky as a modern myth maker, hmm. and the fact that he's, you know, taking these different aspects of religion of Jude Christianity and uh, Islam and some different other things. Uh, Kabbalah is mentioned in Pi, and he's kind of just like working his way through them, uh, not in a way that's like uh, in terms of a literal text, uh, which I think is really interesting. And I know that that was something that was kind of controversial with uh, with Noah in terms of religious <laughs> groups being like, this is not how the story is told. <laughs> And I'm like, well, that's not actually like what he's doing. He's right. kind of taking these stories outside of time, uh, which which I love, and kind of uh, exploring them in a way that's like a, a timeless exploration of 
you know, what it means to transcend or search for a higher power. Um, and I think that that higher power like kind of comes through, uh, in different ways. Sometimes it's, it's literally God, um, you know, either in the numerical sense, like in Pi, or sometimes just in a more spiritual, like the voice of God, uh, in Noah, or, uh, it's actually Javier Bardem and mother. <laughs> right. Um, but then I also think that there's this idea of God or higher power in the idea of success or in celebrity, which uh, is, yeah. you know, the wrestler Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan. So I think he's very much interested in this idea of finding a higher power, transcending. And a lot of the times uh, he's doing that through exploring uh, death. And sometimes it's a literal death or it's a, a small death, a the dying of a, a piece of, of oneself or the amputation uh, of a limb or uh, a, a drill, a power drill to the head as in uh, pie. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I'm, I'm very glad you picked up on the subtle symbolism of mother there. I'm very happy. That you <laughs> figured that out. A very, a favorite movie of mine, actually one that I wrote about on uh, audiences everywhere as well. So, uh, I'm definitely in that camp. I know a lot of people are not, and that's okay. Um, so on a lot of the episodes of this show, sometimes we're talking about older directors. So this comes up a lot more with them. So it may not come up with Aronofsky, but maybe it does. So I'll just ask the question. Is there anything, you know, quote unquote problematic about his work that we need to keep in mind before we kind of watch all these movies? Is there something we should be on the lookout for in terms of gender, in terms of race, anything like that? Um, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I'm I'm trying to think, I feel like there are probably some things in Requiem for a Dream, uh, that probably wouldn't sit as well, uh, today, but I, I know it's also, it's based on a novel, right? um, and I'm not sure, I haven't read the novel, and I'm not sure how many of those things exist, uh, in the novel. I know that, you know, certain things of what, uh, Tyrone goes through in the film um, and what um, uh, Jennifer Conley's character go through. I mean, they, I don't know if they're necessarily problematic, but they are difficult to watch, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I just, I guess, you know, that was, that's what I would say going into them. Um, it's just like, uh, be prepared, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Like we mentioned, kind of overwhelming stuff, um, some difficult stuff to watch for sure. Um, so when we, when we invite you back for our closing episode, we're going to talk about all the great stuff that he's done, everything that you love. But, uh, to start off, do you feel like there's any weak points either in his filmography or things that are missing, like from his style as a director? Um, I, I still, I still think I, I love the idea of the fountain, uh, in terms of like this search for immortality and the struggle to confront death. But I also feel like it might be too obtuse in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I mean, stylistically, it's brilliant. The score is brilliant. Uh, to me, it feels more like a poem than a, a, a narrative, um, mm -hmm. a story. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know if that's like a, a flaw or just like a, a sense of, of personal taste. Um, but it's one that I think, at least for me, has required like a little bit more work to uh, enjoy on the same level as the other ones. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, Pi as well. I mean, Pi is very much, I feel like, a first feature. Um, and I think it has a little bit of that, like, I'm a first-time director. Let me kind of, like, experiment with everything. <laughs> yeah, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the the black and white, uh, the way that that's done is definitely a choice. Um, and I think it's interesting because, um, you know, Nolan's first film is also uh, in black and white. And I think they emerged around the same time. But I think that following is, like, way... Uh, easier on the eyes than mm. what Aronofsky does with Pi. I think that uh, in some ways, like uh, Pi feels a little bit like a cranial assault, which could be <laughs> intentional. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, it's definitely not the most pleasant uh, viewing experience. Yeah, definitely not the most direct either. I think following like narratively, like whether you like it or not, you can, you know, sorry to do this, but you can follow it. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, whereas Pi, like, it's going to be interesting to rewatch that. That's what I'll say. Because the first time I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of get what's happening, but I I'm tuning out now. This is too much for me. So it's going to be actually watching it with a more critical eye and to really pay attention to it. Cause it's not, you mentioned the word obtuse, which I think is the perfect word to describe. <laughs> I, like it is just, it's kind of hammering you, but not in a way that is direct, you know? So it definitely does. It does feel more difficult than maybe the rest of his work. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, another thing I noticed just in looking at his filmography is just like how limited it is. Like when you look at a lot of uh, directors and a lot of this may have to do with the fact that he is, he writes most of the scripts to his movies as well. I think everything except uh, the wrestler and black swan, um, he wrote the screenplay as well. So what do you think as far as like, is he someone you're like just dying for more films or are you kind of happy with like the pace that his career has taken? Uh, I'm dying for more films to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, uh, I mean, he started you know, 20 years ago, right? Yeah. And it's like seven movies. <laughs> yeah. There are, there are huge gaps, uh, in his filmography, um, you know, I, I kind of wish that he had more of a of a Spielberg pace. <laughs> right. Less PTA, um, more Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, just like the the gap between like Black Swan and Noah was four years and then Noah and Mother was three years. And then, you know what? It's it's three well, yeah, years and, this year. And, and Requiem in Fountain was six years. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And we're at three years and I haven't heard about him like planning another movie which is crazy to me like especially because like most of his movies like even if they're not critically received as like a hundred percent they're talked about like i don't think he's ever made a movie that didn't capture the conversation like pick any one of his features and like people talked about these movies even the fountain which probably got kind of its most negative critical reaction I remember when that movie came out and that was absolutely talked about. And God knows people talked about mother for like a year after it was released. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's interesting. And I feel like, especially now there's so much to talk about. Um, (laughs) especially, especially in terms of like the, the, the themes that he's interested in, uh, that it's, it's actually like surprising that there's been no movement on that front. And like, I know that like across his career, there's been like several projects that like never came to fruition. Like he was going to do Batman year one before Nolan. Um, and he was going to do the Wolverine before Mangold. And he was going to do, he was going to do RoboCop, uh, at one point. 
and like it, it's interesting because like it seems like all the the big budget uh, IP projects uh, <laughs> have never worked out for him, um, which I don't I don't uh, mind actually. Yeah, I that might be like good. <laughs> That's <laughs> that'd be quite an interesting. Like, I mean, I would love to see a RoboCop movie directed by Aronofsky, but I'm not sure a lot of RoboCop fans would. Uh, so (laughs) that could go poorly really, really quickly. Um, So the last question I wanted to ask uh, before we end our intro episode. So it's like, as we go through this coverage, we're going to watch all of his movies. Uh, By the way, for people who are interested, we're going to be watching Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, The Wrestler, Black Swan, Noah, and Mother. Um, So as we go through those, what do you think people should be looking forward to? Are there particular movies, stylistic choices, or are there like moments that feel like a like a time capsule, specifically in his older movies? What should we, what should viewers and listeners be looking forward to? Uh, well, for one thing, I think definitely looking for those themes of a higher power, um, a search of uh, a transcendent self, uh, if you would, and I think that. Uh, the parallel journeys is another thing to pay attention to. Um, and even in his filmmaking style, he uses match cuts a lot, hmm. uh, which I really like. Um, and then of course he has his, um, famous from, uh, behind the back shot. Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> um, and I also think that, you know, just in terms of his characters, there's a lot of, uh, delusion. And so I think it's really interesting to think about like what, what is it exactly that his characters are deluded about? What are they trying to convince themselves of and why? Um, and, you know, kind of what separates them from the seeming reality of the rest of their world? Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I often think that uh, his characters are kind of unmoored from reality in some way. Um, they mistake relationships for something else. They mistake their craft for something else um so i think that that idea of delusion is really something that to pay attention to across his filmography awesome that is a lot to look forward to so i hope listeners you all enjoy watching those movies with us um richard will come back at the very end to kind of wrap everything up for aronofsky um so richard one more time tell people how to reach you online and again thank you for being our expert for darren aronofsky I am on Twitter at Richard L. Newby. Um, and if you uh, have interesting thoughts or want to have a conversation about Aronofsky, uh, always open to that. I love talking about his work. Awesome. Excellent. So um, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, if you aren't already, we're at, at DirectedByPod. And if you'd like to listen to our bonus episodes, you can donate any amount of money on patreon.com slash a podcast directed by.